0: All right, take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm hoping real soon to pick up again in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 10, so we finish that book. And then go back to Revelation uh, chapter 20, at the end of actually chapter 20, and finish that and then start chapter 21 on hopefully Sundays. Uh, I know it's been a rough go with COVID and everything and all the... Everything being topsy-turvy and everybody being discombobulated. But praise God. I mean, it's a great Resurrection Sunday. We had a great sunrise service. We had a great service here. The Lord is at work. And in 1 Corinthians 9, I was working on two messages today. And one was on, uh, you know, this generation will not pass away till all these things come to pass. And really looking at that verse and how that verse is taken and how it's uh, Albert Schweitzer and... Even C.S. Lewis felt that Jesus made a mistake there, and uh, Albert Schweitzer more as a non-believer, you know, kind of more an apostate there. C.S. Lewis more as one who said, well, because of his incarnation, Jesus really wasn't knowledgeable of the day and the hour. Therefore, he basically gave out a guess because he didn't know that his statement would be wrong uh, because he was speaking more out of his humanity than his deity. He was a contemporary of Schweitzer, so he was kind of trying to answer that problem there. And that was not the right answer. <laughs> and others, uh, preterist, those who believe that prophecy is either fully fulfilled or almost fully fulfilled, say, no, Jesus was accurate in what he said there. But it was all fulfilled, or at least almost all fulfilled, in the first century by 70 A.D., which is also, <laughs> my estimation, not biblical at all. Uh, others believe he's speaking of that. Uh, this generation really meant that generation, and the Greek could be translated that way. Uh, but I believe that and it's speaking of a future generation that would begin to see those things, and then when those things finally come to pass, that we the last generation that sees the beginning and the end of those things in history. Uh, that's an attractive view to a degree until you get to Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus is also including the temple being destroyed, is in the terms of that generation. So uh, that doesn't really seem to work either. However, there's another view that I think works beautifully, and it fits wonderfully, and it includes the generation which Jesus is speaking to, as well as the future generation. It doesn't speak of the generation as one single generation uh, of 40 years, but the way the Song of Moses, which is foundational to the prophecy regarding Israel in the future, uses the same language of a perverse generation, speaking of a obstinate people that would go through the whole prophetic history of Israel he gives there. And Jesus is basically going from that as he is led, as he is God in the flesh, by the way. And he actually inspired those words as well. So that's I'm giving you a little preview to that, so maybe you could think about that, and maybe you could search it out on your own as well. Uh, and then when we get together next Wednesday, we'll really dive into that, because it's actually so profound what Jesus is saying there. And it just, you get so excited. When we don't understand a text, you never just go like this with your Bible. You never throw away what you do understand because of what you don't understand, amen? Because that's not very wise at all, amen? You trust the Lord, you say, okay, Lord, I don't understand this, but please help me to understand it better. And some things we won't understand, many things we won't understand until we're in glory, amen? We see through glass darkly. So we trust Jesus, amen? But, as I worked hard on that message and almost got it done, I realized, man, this looks like two messages. Man, it was like so big. I thought, man, how am I going to cram all this in? And uh, I might just make that two messages. We'll see. Because we we'll are also be looking at the import of those words. This is a more devotional message. A lot easier to get your head around. And, but hopefully it'll challenge you. And I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, we don't have, we're going to look at a lot of different verses, so we're not going to look at the historical and, you know, context of every passage we look at as far as going in depth into the books. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, do understand at least this much, and we've talked about this book before, that it could have been almost called First Californians, you know? Rich, coastal city, very affluent, Uh, a lot of people doing their own thing, a lot of crazy doctrines swirling around. And the Apostle Paul, almost feeling like he's herding, herding cats, you know. And he talks about, you know, preaching the gospel and, and so forth. And then he says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. He wasn't shadow boxing. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And we're not going to focus on this passage or even the race so much as to an aspect of the race. So we'll talk a little bit about the race. But we are in a spiritual race. Uh, Paul wanted to crown... Of the imperishable wreath. I know it's very customary today to talk about different crowns being different rewards, but I understand this passage as much of the church did for the last 2,000 years, prior to the last maybe 150 years, that Paul is speaking of the crown being in, imperishable wreath being the crown of life. Uh, Jesus talked to the church of Smyrna, he wrote to the church of Smyrna about, you know, just persevering in their faith. He said, Someone, you, you'll, be, you'll be cast into prison you'll be tested for 10 days. He says, be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. So, <laughs> be faithful to death and I will give you the crown of life. And then he said, he that overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Amen? That's, so the crown of life is, is contrasted with the second death. And as many Greeks, Greek exegetes point out that he's talking about the crown, which is life. James chapter one talks about after you endure temptation, you will receive the crown of life. And then he goes on to talk about, break down what temptation looks like. And he talks about all those who love him will receive it. It's similar to what uh, Paul said about the crown of righteousness. You know, so we have this crown and oftentimes, I'm not saying there aren't different crowns, but oftentimes what's in view is, is eternal life itself. And Paul beats his body down. And because he knows that he says after he preaches others, he doesn't others, he doesn't want to be disqualified. And the Greek word for disqualified there, I think the King James has cast away. Some translations have rejected. The Greek word is adakamas. Adakamas, with an A in front, with an alpha in front. Dakamas means to be, to pass. To pass a test. It's use of metals that are tested and found trustworthy. Adakamas, the A, like atheist or agnostic, negates the second word. Adakamas means to fail the test. And when Paul uses the word adakamas throughout his writings, uh, and it's throughout his writings particularly, uh, almost exclusively, if, unless he didn't write Hebrews, Hebrews uses adakamas of the, those who are cursed, the ground that's to be burned. Uh, Paul uses it throughout as a negative way. The opposite of salvation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, he says, test yourselves to see if Christ is in you. Christ is in you. He lives in you, unless you are adakamas. He contrasts being a dakamas with Christ living in you. And that's in the context of the end of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, right before 13.5, where he says there are some who have not repented yet of their sins. In light of the first letter of him saying certain people would not enter the kingdom of God and not to be deceived about those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says uh, he disciplines his body, makes it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. A.T. Robertson, uh, the Southern Baptist preacher, or I should say Greek exegete, uh, I have his word pictures in the Greek, he said if the, Apostle, the great apparel, the Apostle Paul, was concerned about making sure that he persevered in the faith, how much more should we be concerned about that? And what Paul goes on to do is he goes on to talk about those who failed in the race, and he gives himself first as an example as one who is winning the race, your competition is not against your brothers and sisters, it's against the racetrack set before us and the powers of darkness. So in chapter 10, verse 1, remember there were no chapter breaks in the original. You would just go on to read right after he talks about beating his body down. So after he preaches that to others, he himself would not become a dakamas. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. The four is a connective word, a conjunction. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now he's talking about another race in the Old Testament when they were set free by the Passover, the blood of the Passover lambs and they went into the wilderness journey toward the promised land. And he talks about their experiences. and He highlights their incredible experiences being set free from slavery. This is a picture for us because we have been set free from slavery, amen? And all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. Well, we weren't baptized in Moses. We were baptized into who? Into Jesus, amen? And all ate the same spiritual food. They ate the manna from heaven. That manna was a picture of what? What was that manna a picture of? Come on now. We all know. Most of us know, right? The body of Christ, right? He said he's the bread from heaven. He talked about that in John chapter 6, being the true bread that's come down from heaven. All drank the same spiritual drink. Now, you don't have to really spend a lot of time trying to interpret the meaning here because he spells it out. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was what? The rock was Christ. That rock, typologically speaking, that Moses hit, struck, and what came out? The water was a picture of Christ. And they're partaking of the types. They're partaking of pictures. We partake of the reality That's not to say that God wasn't saving them, but he was, through the types of the pictures, he was showing them pictures of the gospel. We partake of Christ, amen? He said he would give us living water, amen? Moses hit the rock and what came out? Water. That was a picture of Christ's crucifixion, amen? He was struck, out came water. Not only physically on the cross, along with blood, the water, the blood and the water are great pictures the water is what came out of the rock. Now remember Moses struck the rock a second time when he got angry and the Lord said you misrepresented me and forbade him for going into the promised land. There was a typology there that's like taking that rock and smacking it a second time was Moses man, you're ruining the type, you're ruining the picture. That's not why God banned him. God banned him because of his anger and he misrepresented who the Lord is. We have to be careful we don't misrepresent who the Lord is. Amen? And it's, it's tough, but you have to make sure that we accurately represent Him. God help us to do so. So they had all these incredible experiences. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. He wiped most of them out. And this is interesting. We're the new wilderness people. They are the old wilderness people. They were a picture of us, even as a rock was a picture of Christ. Even as the manna from heaven was a picture of Christ. Even as the baptism in the, the Sea of Moses was a baptism into Christ. They had all these incredible experiences, yet with most of them, God was not pleased. He laid them low in the wilderness. Paul's preaching is quite different than a lot of preaching today. Because today we like to kind of just gloss over the warnings and just preach the promises. I mean, if you turn on quote-unquote Christian TV, it's almost all about prosperity You know, bless me, bless me, bless me, and you don't see very many warnings. But I believe the warnings are there, so we'll inherit the biblical promises. And I look, I treasure the warnings as much as I do the promises. Because it's the warnings that God uses to help ensure that those who have ears to hear and eyes to see will inherit the promises. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In fact, over and over again, The wilderness was dotted several dots, thousands, hundreds of thousands, ultimately, of dead people before they got to the promised land. That's how serious God is. Are you saying that they were, that's an example to us? Absolutely. Look what he says in verse 6. Now, these things happened as what? Examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So Paul, the apostle, is beating his body down, so he doesn't give in to being an adulterer. Or in his case, because he wasn't married, a fornicator. That wouldn't give in to living a wicked life. Doesn't mean he didn't face temptation. Didn't mean he didn't mean he's perfect and he didn't struggle. He did in Galatians 5. He talks about there being a war between the flesh and the spirit. And the spirit and the flesh. Amen. It's a real war that us Christians have to face. But he said, walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen. That's the key. Now look at verse 7. Then he gives examples, which we don't have time to get into every example, but we'll focus on on one of them uh, tonight. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Let's not be idolaters, folks. Revelation 21.8 says, But the unbelieving, the cowardly, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the liars, all liars, it says, by the way, and idolaters, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. It says specifically in that verse that they'll go to the lake of fire. That's a heavy passage. Idolaters. What does idolatry mean? It means to put something before the Lord. And we can't think, you know what? Hey, we're immune to those temptations. You know, 1 John, John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You know John, the same one who wrote that, very very last verse, I think it's 521 of 1 John. If you go to Revelation 19, Then you go a little bit later in Revelation, twice he bows down before an angel to worship the angel, and the angel says, stop worshiping me. And you know what? It was so subtle because his heart was so excited about the Lord and the beauty and what he was seeing and the power of what was coming, And, and he was so blown away by the Lord's glory that he felt he just had to worship. and He fell down and worshiped an angel on two different occasions. And he was warned, don't do that. Now God is a God of mercy, right? He turned and repented both times. My point is, is that you have to be very, very careful. By the way, I think that's, I hate to say this, because I don't mean it in a very, in a negative way at all. And I don't mean it in a way where I don't want to glorify what happened with John at all. But it blows me away because it must have been so powerful what he was seeing that he just had to worship, you know? Now he, he should have directed that worship somehow toward the Lord, but he worshiped that, Glorious being in his presence, which we're not to worship angels. In fact, angels are commanded to worship Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. Amen. But what's amazing, that shows me that heaven is going to be such a blow mine. It's not going to be this kind of boring kind of thing. You're just going to be so blown away. And that's when John's still seen through a glass darkly. Our eyes are going to be fully open. Amen. And that's why you see the 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne. And all this huge crescendo of praise to the Father. And worship to the Son in the Revelation chapter 5 there. So we have to make sure that we don't get carried away with our emotions and go the wrong direction. Right now there's a lot of weirdness in the body of Christ where people are like, God, I found gold dust on my fingers and wow. And they're just worshiping and, and falling for all kinds of strange doctrines that the Bible warns us about. If we're going to love the Lord and worship Him with spirit and truth, we want to make sure we stay on the straight and narrow, amen? And we worship according to His word. Now it's interesting... Because here we read that he says not to be idolaters. And the Bible, I mean, right now it's like, well, great. Yeah, I mean, praise God. We don't worship here in America. We know better. We don't bow down before statues of Buddha or Shiva or Kali or the Hindu gods or, you know, statues and so forth. We're wiser these days. You know what? There's just as much idolatry here in this country or thereabout as there is in India. Okay? Here we worship the so-called almighty dollar. The Bible warns that men will be lovers of self more than lovers of God. Lovers of self. 1 Timothy 4. That's in the church. It's all about self-love today, right? You always hear, not always, but quite often you hear that we need as Christians to love ourselves more. Jesus says love your neighbor as your self. That indicates that we already do love ourselves. And that's not the hard thing to do. The hard thing to do is love your neighbor as you already do love yourself, amen? Paul says in the last days, terrible times will come. Men will be lovers of self. And then he says there'll be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's idolatry too, to put pleasure before God. We gotta be really, really careful, amen? Colossians, it talks about uh, greed, which is idolatry. Greed can, is a form of idolatry. So we have to be very, very careful with the idols of this age. Jesus says we can't serve both God and mammon. Uh, Matthew 6, 24, you love the one and hate the other, or you hate the one and love the other. Mammon is money, Okay. So we have to be very, very careful because there's a lot of idolatry. In fact, pretty much, I would say everybody that's t- rejecting Jesus is committing idolatry because they're putting something before him. Remember the rich young ruler? I've, I've done everything. I kept all the commandments you mentioned, Jesus. Jesus says, one thing you lack. So he said to give up what he had because that was the idol in his life. And the man left upset, bummed out. And you know what? It's not because the Lord didn't love him says, Jesus looked upon him and loved him. He cared for him. He wanted him. But you have a choice to make. In fact, verse 13 of this passage makes it really clear that there is this nasty thing, which is also a blessed thing, called free will. That we have choice between more than one option. And it's a beautiful gift. We'll get to verse 13 in a minute. But it can be nasty if you misuse it. Well, verse 8, Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. These are all things I'd love to get into, but I realize that I'm not even through the first third of my first page. Nor let us try the Lord, as I mentioned, then verse 10, nor grumble. I want to focus in on this verse a little bit. We'll spend some time on it as far as you know, because this is really what I wanted to focus on. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And that really stuck out to me because I thought, wow. As Christians, we know sexual immorality, idolatry. You know, uh, these kinds of things. You know, craving that which is evil, that which is blatantly wrong, is is sin. But how often do we think of grumbling as being one of those on the list of something that really brings God's wrath? I'm not saying you you, you fall short, which everyone will, and and you, you complain about something, you're like, you know, and, you know, all of a sudden you're under the wrath of God. I'm not talking about that. Paul's talking about getting off the race course. Paul's talking about not finishing the race and then going after evil. And making that a life trajectory. Not to minimize one single instance of our grumbling. But I'm saying Paul is talking more about apostasy here. About that which cost these folks their lives. Because they didn't finish the race. Are you, and it says they were destroyed by the destroyer. Wow. Now they got off the physical path. But we're on the spiritual path. Amen. We're on the straight and narrow road. And 14,700 people were killed when they were murmuring against Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 and 49. And some commentators believe that Paul is specifically referencing this incident because he's trying to protect his ministry, because his ministry is not being accepted among the Corinthians, and you really see that come out in Second Corinthians. We can't know for sure if that's what he has in mind there. It's possible, it's probably safer to say this is possible that Paul was concerned about, but I think it really applies to just grumbling in general if we, if we desire and become grumblers, complainers. And you want to make sure your life is marked by praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and not as a whiner and a complainer. We have so much to be thankful for. And it, you know, And you look at the, what these guys did and it's like, well, how could they be complaining and murmuring? You know, how could they do this? God set them free from slavery. Look what he gave them, all these wonderful experiences. Man, if I went through the the, the Red Sea and he could see walls on both sides and and I was set free and I saw all these Egyptians get destroyed behind me. Wow, and if I saw manna that I was collecting, man, that would be amazing. And I had all these wonderful experiences. I would never do that. How could they do that? It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You and I have been set free in a greater way as I've been pointed out. We were enslaved to Satan, to sin, amen, to death, to Hades, and ultimately to Gehenna, the lake of fire. We've been radically set free. We don't just feed on the physical manna, we have the spiritual manna, Jesus. We don't partake of a rock that brings forth regular water, thank the Lord for water, it's plentiful to us in America, but we partake of the spiritual water, amen, the water of life. We don't have just simply the Passover lamb, as awesome as that would be, whereby we put it on our doorpost in the form of a cross as was instructed. That was a picture of the lamb of God who would die for us. He died for us and we know about him. We understand the gospel in ways they didn't. Amen? And we've been set free from Satan. Not a, not a, not Pharaoh the despot. And yet we say, well, if I was, because, and I have to admit, i'm guilty of it too i remember as a young christian reading through the exodus shaking my head like what are they doing you know you start to get frustrated what are they doing and then you start seeing as you're pointing like what are you doing you got three fingers pointing back that we all have to be careful amen that we recognize wait these are pictures for us verse 11 now these things happen to them as what an example you you might be thinking, didn't we already read that verse? No, we read verse 6. It says a similar thing. These are examples written down for us. Then Paul reiterates it. And guess what? When you read through the scripture, no parchment is wasted. Parchment was expensive, you know? And this book is inspired by the living God who authored it, amen? Who, you know, Theonustos breathed these words for us. He doesn't waste anything he doesn't waste a word not a jot or a tittle and he wants to say this again to us so we'll take heed now these things happen to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come well praise god i'm glad you're preaching this to the person next to me joe because i've got it down man i don't ever complain oh well then look at verse 12 therefore let him who thinks he stands what take heed that he does not fall you think you're standing? Every true believer thinks he stands in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter eleven, verses twenty through twenty-two, he says, "Don't be high-minded to the branches that were broken off. You stand by your faith, and if God did not spare the natural branches, speaking of the Jewish believers who became unbelievers, neither will He spare you." He says, "Consider the goodness and the severity of God." Severity toward them, but goodness toward you, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So argues from the greater to the lesser. They were the natural branches, were the unnatural branches as Gentile believers, unless you're a Jewish believer. And we need to be thanked. He says, you stand by your faith. He's not warning non-believers. Non-believers don't stand by their faith. He's warning believers, very clearly, that they stand by their faith, that they're to continue to trust Jesus. Now, what's important here is we have the Jews used over and over and over and over and over and over again as examples to us throughout the New Testament. But we're under grace and not under the law. Absolutely, amen. But Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 says it's worse to fall away under grace than it is the law. In fact, the author of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, who is definitely a Christian, says, if we, he includes himself, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth, by the way, is a term for salvation. Paul said God's will is that all will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, by a certain looking for a fiery indignation which will consume the adversaries of God. And then he says, if under the law of Moses they were destroyed under two or th- a testament of two or three witnesses, that's bad. Destroyed under a testament of two or three witnesses. <laughs> under Moses' law, guess what he says? He'll go and say, but you're under grace and you can commit apostasy because we're under grace. No, he says, of how much worse King James' sore punishment suppose ye shall he receive who was trampled underfoot the Son of God and insulted the Spirit of grace and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, which is in a passive voice there, God sanctified him, an unclean thing. So, he argues regarding the Jews that we're supposed to draw a line from their experiences to our experiences and the promised land to heaven for us. We are in our, we're the new wilderness people. Jude, in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I was going to write to you about our common salvation, but then he says God had changed his heart and he wants to warn us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith against who? For certain men, verse 4, have crept in, unnoticed, who are turning the grace of our God into a license for immorality. I think the King James has lasciviousness. The NIV has license for immorality. Um, And I think the NASB, which we have, which I use, more often is licentiousness, which is license. So they're turning the grace of God into a license for immorality, denying the only Lord and Master. Jesus Christ. They're denying his lordship in their lives. And then the very next verse, you know what he gives an example? After God saved once a people, or as the NIV has it there, after he once delivered, King James has saved, the Greek word is used for salvation. But he's going back, he's looking back at Israel, the Jews who didn't experience salvation the way we have. After he once delivered them, out of Egypt, he later destroyed those who did not believe. Then he goes on to describe angels who abandoned their original estate and are bound in chains of darkness to be judged at the judgment of the great day. And then he talks about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them and how they were destroyed with fire and are exhibited as an example for those who would do likewise. Then he goes on to talk about these teachers who entice believers to think that they can live those types of lifestyles. Hence, why the book of Jude and 2 Peter are called the dark corner of the New Testament doesn't fit in with a lot of what's properly taught. There's strong warnings. I mean, I've got, I've probably got 20 commentaries on 2 Peter. <laughs> and many of the commentaries, they, they point out the same thing, that 2 Peter's hard for Christians to read today. Well, why? We shouldn't be like, oh, wow, that's too strong. Peter. we should be shaking our heads and saying, yeah, that's what we need to hear, Peter. That's what we need to hear, Jude. And Peter was one who didn't take heed when he stood, lest he fell. Remember? Oh, they'll all deny you, but I'll never do that. That's impossible, Jesus. I couldn't do that. I'm just, you know, I'm Peter, or whatever he was thinking. Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Remember that? And he's falling asleep in Gethsemane. Because it says all the other, sometimes we pick on Peter, but guess what? Peter's picture of me and you in the flesh, not trusting and recognizing that we can't, get, we, can't, we can't put our confidence in the flesh. We can't put confidence in our own performance. We can't live the Christian life, amen, without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why when Peter's fall asleep at Gethsemane, and Jesus, the Son of God, is praying radically, right? Sweating, as it were, blood with his sweat, hematidosis, because of the, 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 the excruciating agony that he's going through. But they're falling asleep. And Jesus... Can't you pray one hour with me? That's convicting. And I I take that as, guess what? You won't deny me, you're saying, but you can't even pray an hour with me? And you you say, you're going to get through this trial coming up? It's the power of darkness, he says elsewhere. And then when the test comes, man, they fall on their faces. Peter denies the Lord three times. But you know what the Lord said? I pray that your faith will not fail. Amen? He makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. Amen? Amen. We are saved by his grace through faith. And guess what? We stand by his grace through faith. Peter says we're kept by the power of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. We're kept by the power of God through faith. But you know what? He ever lives to intercede for you. And he said he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. He says, when thou art converted, King James, or as NSB has it, when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. That's what First and 2 Peter are all about. He strengthened his brethren so we would not fall like he he fell. And here Paul is saying, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because this is serious stuff. Because he draws a line from them to us and they were destroyed by the destroyer. I think it's Psalm 78 says the Lord sent a band of destroying angels. Remember Paul said, consider the goodness and the severity of God. God is also a destroyer. He's Lord, he's Savior, but he's also a destroyer. James says in the book of James, the epistle of James, that there's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. You know that? That's awesome. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, says that God's a consuming fire. That's not just in the Old Testament. And that's in the context of a warning. If they did not escape who heard the law from Mount Sinai, how much less will we escape if we disregard him who speaks from heaven? See that argument from it's more severe in the new covenant to turn away from grace and trample underfoot the blood of Christ than to disregard the law of Moses? Both were deadly. So these passages get my attention when I go through them like, Lord, wow, man, you're so serious. May we fear you. May we love you. May we grow in you. And it's important that we don't find ourselves committing something. Because how many people are concerned, okay, man, I'm going to make sure I'm true to my spouse. I'm going to make sure I'm faithful to the covenant I made at my wedding. Or I'm going to make sure, you know, uh, I don't steal. I'm going to make sure I don't commit idolatry. I'm going to make sure, you know. But then all of a sudden, there's, there's probably, it could be even millions through the centuries of professing Christians who aren't involved in obvious sins, but we can get so easily involved in, you know, complaining. I mean, I'm just warning you, because I had a really, really hard time with what just happened this last year, with lies, a lot of lies coming from the liberals. I mean, the news media is just like so sold out. I mean, the reason the, the media gets even lower grades or just about low grades. I don't know what the stats are right now. Is Congress, which is in the teens or something, for approval rating, or maybe eight or something. I don't know what it is lately. Is because when people hear the term fake news, it resonates with them. They realize there's just a bunch of lies out there. And what happens is conservative talking heads and pundits are constantly complaining about this. Okay? And a lot of them don't know Jesus. And it's just one long stream Sometimes a vomit. There's no hope. There's no look to Jesus with many of them, and I'm saying you have to be very, very careful because I certainly don't want to go personally to MSNBC or CNN as my news source, okay? But when you go to conservative news sources, if you park your car there and you stay there, sometimes there's a constant spirit of complaining. You understand what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, we can get aggravated and all of a sudden get caught up in that same spirit of constantly complaining about what's wrong and forgetting that we've got this great commission and we're called to be soul winners. and We're supposed to be winning the the loss that are all around us, amen? And instead of complaining about the problems all the time, we should be sharing the good news, amen? We have good news. There's fake news. There's true news. In the secular world, there's some truth out there, but we have the real good news, amen? The evangelion. And Jesus commissioned us to preach it to every creature. Amen? And we need to be about our Father's business. And yes, there's so much to complain about. Of course there's a lot to complain about. We live in a fallen world. Amen? And you know the angels who behold our assembly and the angelic beings who see our lives, they can complain about us constantly. You know what I'm saying? They go to heaven like, I can't believe you saved these guys. I can't believe you saved Pastor Joe. You know? Can't believe you. I'm not gonna start naming names. I'll just name my own name. But you know what I'm saying? Can't believe it. I can't believe it. I'm watching these guys. No, they're blown away that God would save us. So they are kind of shocked. It says that they marvel that the Lord saved us. They long to look into these things. That's in Ephesians, similar to what it says of the prophets who wrote the prophecies. They want to long. They long to understand what God was doing. Well, the angels long to understand what He did. Like what in the world? He didn't die for angels. It says that in Hebrews chapter two, He didn't taste death for them. He tasted death for everyone, but not the angels. For us. No wonder Satan's really ticked off. I believe it's for a few reasons. His nature is evil. But guess what? We have this really great news, amen? And I'm not saying don't listen to your favorite, you know, talk show host, your talking head that gives you the news, but I'm saying be careful when you find yourself more listening to complaining news than in God's word, amen? Amen? It's so easy. It happens to so many Christians. We have to be very, very careful. Now, uh, I, if I ask people to raise their hands right now and say how many of you feel like you got caught up too much in just a negative spirit about what's going on and you got your eyes off of Jesus a little bit. I'm sure a lot, of, oh, don't, you know, put, don't put up your hands. I said if I did that right, right away, Frank put his hand up. No, I'm just kidding. There's no Frank up here, but a few people put their hands up, but a lot of hands would go up because it's so easy. And, you know, and God, God wants us, by the way, let me just say this. God wants us to hate evil. The Bible says in Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And one of the Psalms says the love of the Lord is to hate evil. So if we fear the Lord and we love the Lord, we're going to hate evil and we ought to. It's a problem when we no longer blush over evil. We should be appalled. Amen. We shouldn't be upset. So praise God, you have a spiritual pulse that you're sensitive to what's right and wrong and you hate evil, if that's the case. I hope that is the case. But in the midst of hate and evil, we have to remember the sinners that Jesus died for. We remember they're perishing and they need the gospel. We, remember, we need to remember, as Titus tells, Paul tells Titus in chapter 3, not to forget where he came from, that, he was, that, that we remind them Paul tells Pastor Titus to remind the congregation that they were once maligners, that they were once filled with lust, that they were once, that was us before Christ. As Paul says, know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, or adulterers, or feminine, or homosexuals, revilers, extortioners, drunkards, and so forth. He says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, but such were some of you. But you were what? You were, you, were sanct- you, were, you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. That was us. It's by the grace, I know it's by the grace of God that I'm saved. I could be the guy in the next building over that doesn't know Jesus very easily. But by his grace, Paul says, I am what I am, amen? So we need to recognize we've been saved by grace and these people are blinded and they need the gospel. And our job is to bring them the, the living water, the message of Jesus. And, you know, it's one thing to sit there and complain about a ship that's sinking and just keep complaining about the different holes and how they didn't, that holes, then they could have done this about that and they could, have, they could have made that part better. While people are screaming and dying, we should be going and saving them, amen? And we can't save them, but we can bring them the gospel that saves them, amen? And are, do you find yourself... And guess what? We're not going to save the Titanic that we're on. Okay? Kingdom dominionism is, I believe, a false doctrine that we become the saviors of the world, the new apostolic reformation, that we're going to save the planet, that we're the new apostles. And some of them say the apostles of old, some people think I'd love to be alive in their days, but no, they would marvel to be alive and be, see what we're doing. It's like, give me a break. And a lot of them believe that with the so-called seven mountain mandate that they're going to take over these seven sectors of society, government and the military and arts and entertainment and education, all these different things, and they're going to rule the world, then Christ could finally come back. Well, my Bible tells me the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ, Revelation 11, 15 through 19, when he returns. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. Amen. We're not involved in a physical fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Chris powers. Therefore, the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. Through the pulling down of strongholds. And every high thing that exalts itself against the of God. We have spiritual weapons. We're supposed to be praying for the lost. We're supposed to be crying out to God. We're supposed to be witnessing and shining the light. Amen? To the lost. And we need to make sure that we don't get this, you know. Complain a lot. A lot of professing Christians are complaining because Hollywood, Madison Avenue, uh, the commercialism in society, and sometimes even the prosperity doctrine, has made Christians think that what it means to be a, 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 a good American or a good Christian is to, you know, have a mansion and have you know Maserati and and or whatever. And guess what? Those things will never fill you up. They'll never satisfy you. And because you don't have those things, it's not just those who, it warns those who want to be rich. People think, oh, there's warnings for the rich. Yeah, there's warnings for the rich, but there's also warnings for those who want to be rich. If that becomes your main focus and you lose focus of Jesus, that becomes a form of idolatry. In fact, in Ephesians chapter one, four, nineteen, listen to what it says. It's about putting off the old man, putting on the new. It says, they became callous. And gave themselves over to promiscuity, top of the lost world, to sexual sin. For the practice of every kind of impurity, every kind of impurity. A desire and a dire listen to this, with a desire for more and more. I talked to a couple people that used to be in the porn industry, then professed profess faith in Christ, and they said that's the way it goes. I mean, I didn't I couldn't even listen to some of the things they were describing as that they were involved in. And they said, oh, that's so perverted because you're never satisfied. The public's never satisfied. They always want more and more. They're never satisfied. The things of the flesh never satisfy you. And, and, and it could be, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But it also could be this the consumer mentality. And if you play Pac Man when you're young, Jimmy's the only one that's gonna admit that. I'll admit it Jimmy, I played Pac-Man when I was blue guy. quite a few hands going up. That oh, what a fun game. For a minute or a few minutes. But you know what? You always want to get to the next level. You just find yourself back in my day, man. You're, we didn't have it at the house, man. But I had it at the pizza shop. I was making pizzas at, and you're sticking quarters in, you know. I was better at Space Invaders, you know. Got the high score there for a while at the pizza shop. But Pac-Man, I just, man, it was like, this is ridiculous because you just keep trying to eat these little things. You try to get the next level, and you can never win. I think Space Invaders was like that too, but you got a little more satisfaction. But either way, they're, they're messed. That, that mentality when it comes to living life Keeping up with the Joneses, you know. If I could just get this, you never really reach your satisfaction level. And oh, it sets off the, you know, different, you know, I mean, I'm not going to talk about the, but it it gets, it's pretty heavy when they analyze what happens to the brain when you're playing a lot of video games and stuff. You've got to be very, very careful. But that's what happens with a lot of people in life. They put things before Jesus and they're never satisfied. In fact, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 3, verse 14, and some soldiers were questioning him. Saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money uh, from anyone by force. Roman soldiers. Don't take money from anybody by force. Or accuse anyone falsely. Those are two things you can be tempted to do as an officer of the Roman law. And be content with your wage. In other words, be content with what you're making. He's not saying don't pray for another job or what have you. But he's saying this. Don't accuse someone falsely. Because you're not content with your wages. Don't take money or something from somebody by force and abuse your power. But be content with what you have. And as Christians, we need to make sure we don't go over the line. Amen? That we're seeking Jesus. And if anyone knew about the sickness, the spiritual malady of living for things, it was Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2.10, he says, Anything my eyes desired... I did not deny myself. This was in his life when he fell away, when he backslid. I believe. He's obviously talking about when you go through Solomon, when he fell away from the Lord. And the book of Solomon, I believe, is his recovery. Anything my eyes desired, I did not deny myself. I refused my heart no pleasure, for my heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. But you know what he says in 2.11? Yet... When I considered all the works that my hands had accomplished and what I had toiled for to achieve, I found everything to be futile. A pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Chapter 1, verse 8. All things are wearisome. More than one can describe. The eye is not satisfied. You catch that? The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear content with hearing. In chapter 4, verse 8. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yeah? He has neither child nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. And then it says, Neither saith he for whom I do I labor and bereave my soul of good. This also is vanity. Yeah, it's sore. It's sore travail. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Wow. That's heavy. What was it? Getty, who said, one of the richest men of the world at the time, when is, when is it going to be enough, you know? And he said, he just need a little bit more money. It's never enough. He that loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty: Hell and destruction are never full. That's heavy. Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. In the New Testament, we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have for he himself has said i will never leave nor forsake you so we may boldly say the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me in other words when you're facing hardship you know don't focus on the things of this world to deal with your hardship be grateful that you have the lord amen and he's your treasure and that he won't leave you or forsake you amen Matthew six twenty five, Jesus said, "Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life." And this is right after he said, "You know you can't serve both God and man. Either you hate the one, love the other; love the one, hate the other." He says, "Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, that what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes." Verse thirty two, he says, "For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness." And all these things will be added to you. Amen? So he wants to take care of us. Everyone I can see here is clothed. Thank God. Okay? And we're blessed. So we're called to be content with food and covering. Paul says in First Timothy chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6, But godliness actually is a means of great contentment when accompanied, or when accompanied by contentment. It's a means of great gain. I'm sorry, I misread that. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment contentment and right before that i didn't write the verse down but or 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 copy it onto my page Uh, it talks about men of corrupt minds who teach that godliness is a means of financial gain that's niv teach the means of gain niv has and i believe that's the context they teach that godliness is the means of financial gain that's like the word faith movement you know today you live a godly life and god's gonna make you rich and in 2 Peter chapter 2, he warns of false prophets. He says, even as there are false prophets among the people in the Old Testament times, he says, yeah, we have false teachers among you who should privately bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And he says, through their sensuality, they will bring the truth into disrepute. In other words, because of what they're doing, they'll exploit you to make merchandise of you. That's what he says. They'll make merchandise of you. That's what's happening. You send me this much money, and God's going to reward you a hundredfold. And they're getting rich off the people. And guess what's happening as a result of that? They're making merchandise of you, he says. And he says this, they'll bring the way of truth, that's the gospel, into disrepute. Meaning people look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they'll see it as a money grabbing enterprise. And they'll be turned off of the gospel because of these false prophets. That's serious stuff. And guess what? That's prophecy that's being fulfilled before our very eyes today. Is it not? And it's very, very heartbreaking. That's why we need to make sure that we shine as lights in this world as to what it means to be believers and we take this seriously and we walk humbly before people circumspectly that we love people that we, we, we let walk as people who are saved by grace through faith and people can see that in our lives because we're kind to people because we recognize it's about what he's done for us and we're saved by his grace so we teach other, treat other people with great love and great respect and great concern. So he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment for we have brought nothing into the world so we, can take, we can't take anything out of it either. How many of you have been to funerals? How many of you have followed the trail of cars? How many of you followed the hearse to a funeral? All of us at one time, probably, right? At least many of us, dozens of times. Have any of you seen the hearse pulling a big old U-Haul? No. Because you can't take it with you, amen? That's what Paul says here. If we have food and covering... With these we shall be content. The question is, are we? But those who want to get rich, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. They've wandered away from the faith because of a lust for money and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness. He's telling Timothy this, a young pastor. So all of us need to take heed to this. He says, pursue godliness, uh, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I mean, if anyone had a right to complain and grumble, you would think, but he didn't. It would be the Apostle Paul. I mean he said, I speak as if insane, he says. He says, I've been in more labors. How about that others? These super apostles who were getting their attention. Uh, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, because they'd stop at thirty-nine, so they wouldn't kill you. Five times he went through that, he said. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me and concern for all the churches. All the churches. Most of us pastors don't have to be concerned about all kinds of churches. Paul went through so much stuff. But he didn't complain. I mean, this guy, he was in constant danger all the time. I mean, he gets some reprieve here and there. But I remember in Israel being surrounded on on Ben Yehuda Street witnessing to Orthodox Jews and all of a sudden being surrounded by a bunch of them. And I've told you the story before, so I'll just make it quick because all of a sudden I found the guy next to me who's a Messianic Jew working at the Christian bookstore when I was buying Christian books. When, he, when I told him I was going to go share the gospel, he wanted to join me. He's joining me, but they're hammering on him. Bam, you know, and we're walking and he's proclaiming the gospel still. We're trying, he's telling me not to <laughs> because I kept talking when they were kind of circling him. I kept trying to show with this guy who was really close. He's like, Joe, no. And I thought, oh, he just doesn't want you at this point. Okay, we're walking. And then he starts yelling things out. I asked him what he was yelling. You know, he's yelling the gospel still. And guess what? I mean, they followed us and one of them picked up a big piece of asphalt and they were on our tail. Other, other Orthodox Jews made him put it down. But they were on our tail and I was like watching, you know, and they were just two and there was like, 13, 15, whatever it was. And then we took a turn. He goes, let's go this way. I knew we were staying at Christ church. And I thought, we're going the wrong way. I go, we're going, why are we going this way? He goes, he goes, you'll see. And they stopped like they hit a brick wall. Bam. And watched us. He goes, we just entered in the Muslim quarter and they're not coming in this quarter. <laughs> like, I never thought I'd be so happy being in a Muslim neighborhood and not sharing the gospel. I'm like, you know, but you know what? That was a trip. But that was just a little tiny taste of what Paul was going through all the time. You see what I'm saying? That's why I bring that up. Not to say, oh, praise the Lord. No, I'm like, wow, that was nothing compared to what the Apostle Paul went through on a seemingly, at times, daily basis. It just blows me away. Paul writes from Philippians, to the Philippians, I'm sorry, from a prison in Rome, and he lets us know how he could go through all that because he knew the secret. And the secret isn't that new age book and video and now the new movie that's come out on, offered on television about where the genie comes out of the bottle and grants you your positive confession, which is influenced, by the way, the word faith movement again. But the secret is about, is knowing Jesus and being content in him and realizing who you have in him. Because Paul says in Philippians chapter four, writing from prison, but I, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, like I, like I have a bunch of needs. For I have learned to be content. What? Paul said he learned to be content. In other words, it wasn't something he just was always. He had to learn this lesson. And we want to know this lesson. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's glorious. How would you like to be content in whatever circumstances you're in? Amen. How do you do that, Paul? I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to get, live in prosperity. He'd been in both situations. In any and every circumstance, I love this, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things, this is the secret, I can do all things through Christ or Him who what? Him who strengthens me, amen? That's a real secret. Stay close to Jesus, man. If a child has their hand in the hands of a dad who's strong, loving, and caring, they don't have to be fearful. Well, guess what? We are in the hands of the Father and the Son. Amen? Amen? And Jesus said, the Father and the Son, he said, greater than all. And no one can snatch us out of their hands. Amen? And Paul said, neither height nor depth or principality or power or any other creative thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? We have joy. We have peace. We have security in Christ. The key is being in Jesus, amen? Looking to Him in faith. I love what the Scriptures say, and it's interesting because Paul states that we should be content, but look at what he warns the believers in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, Paul's writing this from prison, writing this as an apostle who went through all kinds of bad stuff, and he tells us, do all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that at the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Amen? That's awesome. How do you do that? What's the secret? I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you can't just know that truth. You have to act on it. How do you act on it? Paul states, Philippians 4, 4 through 8, Rejoice in the Lord always. First of all, rejoice in Him. And I say again, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with what? Prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I remember I was sitting, laying there in the hospital, five days with COVID, in the hospital with a heart condition. I never had a heart condition in my life, and I'm an AFib, with my cardiologist. One of my cardiologists said, you will not survive if you get get COVID. Sitting there, okay, Lord. And I have to admit, I can't say, oh, you know what? Every day I was just full of faith and just, I know where I'm going and praise the Lord. No, there were times where I was like, man, I got so close to this passage, casting my cares on him. I couldn't see anybody. Didn't know what what was going to happen. Wasn't sure what his will was. You heard a lot of other circumstances around that too. But you know what? I just treasure that passage, man. Because you know what? I just continually gave it to Jesus. Gave it to Jesus. And then he gave me that peace that surpassed understanding. Because I didn't walk in there. I mean, I walked in there and I can say this. Yeah, for sure. I was seeking the Lord. I was praying and I was being a witness. All those things. But you know what? There's some part in my heart where there's some consternation still. Where I was like, you know what? I can't say I have hundred. 100% 100% peace at this moment. And I continued to pursue him and seek him, sometimes with tears, you know. And then I really, in, in unimaginable ways, ways I didn't even think were coming, he, he spoke to my heart, lifted me up, encouraged me through some dreams and things of that nature where I was just like, whoa, Lord, you know what? And then I was at the point where it didn't matter at all. Whether I come or go, uh, you know, definitely torn. I can relate to that, Paul, between two, two desires, And of course, Lord, I'd love to stay and bear more fruit, because I have a lot more I want to do for you before I go into glory, because I can't witness in heaven, right? But of course, I can't wait to see you, and I had such peace, but it came through prayer that, I'm talking about a supernatural abiding peace, amen? You have to seek the Lord in prayer. You're not going to be content if you just go through the motions. Jesus talked about abiding in Him, and you'll bear much fruit, right? He talked about if you abide in Him, and you pray, you ask anything in His name, and the key is his name, meaning in accordance with his will and his person. And, 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 he'll, and you'll receive it. And Then he talked about how your joy will be made full. So it's through abiding in Christ, by abiding in his word, staying in his word, allowing his word to abide in you, amen? Abiding in his presence through prayer, through supplication. letting him know the needs that you have. Let him know the struggles we have in our frailness, in our, in our weakness as human beings. Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me, hold me up by your grace, and crying out to him and saying, Lord, Your will be done in my life. Amen? Praying our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Focus on his kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not our wills, right? Give us this day our daily bread, praying that he'll meet our needs according to his riches and glory. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others that sin against us because our greatest need is forgiveness and mercy and the greatest need in our characters is to become like our Father who is merciful to his enemies and loves his enemies. Amen? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you're praying in accordance with what Jesus taught. You're abiding in his word, and you're praying, you're walking in the spirit, and then you're having that peace. Because guess what? You know you're in the best hands that exist. You're in the creator's hands, the creator of the universe. And when you look at his hands, they're scarred. There's nail prints there, amen? And those nail prints show that he loves you and gave himself for you, amen? And that you can trust him, and that he is more than trustworthy. Amen? You know, Paul did pray. He did have a little thing that could have become a complaint. And it wasn't little. So I shouldn't say little, because sometimes we think, because Paul went through so much that he got through so many things that they weren't much to him, but I'm sure they were painful. And I know this thing was painful enough for him to pray three different times. He had a thorn in the flesh that was very, very painful to deal with. And three different times he besought the Lord. A messenger from Satan that was beating him up, he says. And I'm not going to get into the debate as to what that thorn was, but I'm just going to say this. I like that there's some mystery surrounding it because that way we can all apply it to our lives. We all have some thorns in our lives at times, amen, that are painful to deal with. He said he had besought the Lord. He sought the Lord three times that the Lord would take it from him. And guess what? The Lord spoke to him and said, My grace is what? Sufficient for you, Amen. And he said that he was at work in his life. And that when he is weak, he knows that he's strong in the Lord, that the Lord's grace shows up. When we recognize that we can't overcome a problem on our own, it makes us cry to the Lord. And His grace is sufficient to get us through whatever we face. Amen? There's that not only saving grace, but there's enabling grace, where He empowers us to overcome sin. But there's also that, that, that ministering grace whereby He gives us the peace that passes human understanding. And He doesn't give us more than we can handle. Because in chapter 10, verse 13, which I didn't read, read yet, and I won't go back there, but Paul says, there's no temptation that's taken you or trial. The Greek word is parasmos. It can mean temptation or trial. And every temptation is also a trial for the believer. And every trial has a temptation with it to take the wrong route. And he says, there's no perasmas, temptation or trial, that's overcome you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, who with the trial or temptation will also give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a choice you, can, you have to make. You have to choose Jesus. Let's not keep up, try to keep up with the Joneses, amen? Let's simply abide in Jesus. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time, amen? For God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If you're too proud to pray, oh, I could do it on my own, I don't need to pray. Ah, I'm sorry, you're in trouble. God's opposed to you then, because he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, amen? But if you humble yourself and say, you know what? The flesh profits nothing. I put no confidence in the flesh. And you recognize you're not only saved by grace through looking to the cross and what Jesus did for you on the cross. And not by any merit or any good work that you could ever do, could ever earn your salvation, amen? It's strictly by what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. But you are called, you're you're called to have faith and trust him, amen? So you're saved by grace through faith, amen? We're kept by the power of God, Peter says, through faith to you, 1 Peter 1, 5. But guess what? As you live your Christian life, you're also enabled to live the Christian life by grace, amen? But you're also called to depend on his grace to get through your trials, to get through the painful things that you've gone through, to recognize that the Lord is not like blown away and can't believe what you went through, but guess what? He's like right there saying, hey, I'll get you through this. Well, he doesn't know what I'm going through. Are you kidding? The Lord Jesus Christ went through more than all of us put together. He bore all of our sins, by the way, Amen? on the cross. Yeah, but he's, he's God. He has everything. When he became a man, Jesus said that the birds of the air have nests and the foxes, of, foxes have their dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He just stated reality, but he wasn't complaining. He was looking to the Father. Yet we complain if we don't have the best bed or the best pillow or the best man cave or whatever it is. Amen. All you need is Jesus. And I want to encourage you guys. Let's be so thankful that we're saved. You know, I can't see Paul complaining a lot. You know what the only reason is because he knows he deserved hell. He knew he was the chief of sinners. Amen. He knew he was saved by God's grace. Amen. I know I look at my life and I know I deserve hell. I know be, how, what I was like before I knew Jesus. And I know even now as a believer that we all fall short of God's glory. Amen. And that it's all his grace. And the only thing I always remind you, the only thing we can take credit for ultimately in our lives is our sin, amen. What do you have? What have you received that you did not, were not given, Paul says, amen? Anything we have is from the Lord, from the Father of lights who gives to each one impartially, amen. Love you guys, man. He loves you guys so much. Trust him, look to him. Don't lose your focus on him. Be content in him, amen. Don't be off to the races and make your focus money. Keep your focus on Jesus, amen. Continue in the race and don't be disqualified. Look at the examples that went before you. Don't fall the way they fell. Ring the bell at the end and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray.